You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you need batteries for your truck, batteries for your trail cameras, TV remote controls, flashlights, you name it, Interstate Batteries has what you need. They have thousands of retail locations all over the United States. So stop in, talk to a battery specialist, or for more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. This is a Houndsman XP podcast with your host, Steve Fielder, and me, Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. In this episode of the Houndsman XP Podcast, we go to Las Cruces, New Mexico, and we're going to be talking with Seth Hall. Seth Hall keeps coursing dogs. Don't know what a coursing dog is? Well, stay tuned, because by the time this is over, you will know exactly what a coursing dog is, how those dogs are used. Uh, They're lightning fast or catching, uh, using them to catch lightning fast hares out there on those wide open spaces. But Seth is a wildlife biologist. He's very well spoken and uh, capturing the history of coursing dogs and other legendary houndsmen from the Southwest. So you want to stay tuned for that. Before we get to that, make sure you're checking out our friends over at W Hunting Supply. W Hunting Supply uh, is top notch in customer service. I'm going to be on the road starting here tomorrow. Uh, as I record this two weeks before you get it. But I know that if I have any kind of issue, I can get on their app, I can order what I need, and I can have it shipped virtually anywhere in the United States. All I need to get them is an address, and bang, it's on its way. So make sure you're checking out W Hunting Supply. We're going to be doing a lot of hunting the next few weeks. Podcasting is going to be a little bit slow, but hunting is in high gear. We're going to be chasing the big cats all over the West over the next four to five weeks. And we've got a couple of major outdoor shows that we're going to be at. We'll be at the SHOT Show in Las Vegas. So um, be work, working the Freedom Hunters booth with Anthony Pace. So make sure that while the podcasting might be a little bit slow, our social media is going to be in high gear. We're going to be uh, capturing a few interviews here and there along the way, but we're definitely going to capture our hunting adventures on our social media pages. So make sure you're tuning in to uh, Facebook and Instagram and following us there. Hey, without any further delay, let's get into this interview and meet Seth Hall. Welcome to the Houndsman XP Podcast, and this week we are talking to a sidehound hunter from New Mexico, 
Before we get to that, though, Steve is on the road. He is pulled off on a truck stop and begrudgingly leaving his truck running while we record this podcast. And, Steve, when we get to uh, Arizona here in a couple weeks, I'll give you $2.49 for that gallon of gas. <laughs> well, I'm driving a Ford here, so, you know, I get a lot of mileage. Uh, yeah. I have to, every once in a while, stop and siphon off a little bit so that I don't burst the tank. I hear but, you. Uh, <laughs> no, it's great to be aboard. And, uh, yeah, on the way up to the Grand American Coon Hunt in That's North right. South Carolina. So our listeners will be able to see about how much lead time we do on these podcasts. But, uh, yeah, beautiful day here in North Florida. I'm just south of the Georgia line on Interstate 95 heading north. So uh, Have you looked at the... Day. Have you looked at the weather forecast for Freedom Hunters, the Freedom Hunters hunt yet? Did you see that text? I did. It looks like I'm going to have to put that merino wool uh, base layer to to good use. Absolutely. Uh, while I'm out there, it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's going to. Yeah, it'll be about. A, I'm I'm looking at about sixty degrees right now. Oh, you're so in good that's shape. That's about thirty degrees. Yeah, yeah. You're in good shape. Good deal. Oh yeah. Well, hey, we've yeah. got we've got a guy on here, and I'll, I'll just kind of lay it out. And before you jump in here, uh, so we've got Seth Allen, who is a uh, USDA wildlife biologist. He is also a a uh, coursing dog sidehound hunter, and uh, kind of found Seth on social media. I've, I'm a member of several hound groups, but uh, I was really impressed with his ability to capture the hunt through photography and then also through the uh, the, the writing that he did. I could tell that, that Seth was a guy that uh, was very meticulous about the way he presented himself and represented the sport of sidehound hunting. So, Seth, say hello to the Houndsman XP Nation. Hey everybody! Uh, it's an honor to be here. I'm very excited to be talking to you guys this morning. Well, Seth, tell us where you're from. I, I, we always go through this, but we're we're going coast to coast and even international now. So we like for our listeners to know exactly where you're at, the kind of conditions you're hunting in, and then we'll we will definitely get into the dogs and things like that. But for now, just tell us tell us where you're at and where you where you're talking to us from. So I'm talking from Las Cruces, New Mexico. I was born here and uh, I was raised in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, but then I moved back to Las Cruces to go to New Mexico State University and that's where I got my wildlife degree in. And I was fortunate enough to get a job here with the USDA Hornada Experimental Range and uh, I've been here ever since. So I've been living in Las Cruces now for 10 years Um, and yeah, I mean, I could... I've always wanted to get into hound hunting. I grew up in a, a very outdoorsy family, but I um, didn't do any hound hunting with them. Um, and I've always been huge into dogs. And I wanted to be a, a canine handler for a, like a police force for a long time. But mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I decided when I went to school, I'd rather be a wildlife biologist instead. So animals in the outdoors and hunting have always been my passion. Yeah, so and we want so, uh, we definitely want to talk oh, to you about we want to talk to you about your wildlife biologist career. Tell us kind of the conditions there where you're hunting right now. Oh, yeah. So um, if you guys remember talking to Brett Vaughn, we hunt in similar country. So um, it's very uh, dry here. 
Um, but coursing dogs and scent hounds hunt obviously different prey and different styles. And the southern area of New Mexico is really diverse in its terrain. And we have a lot of shrub dominated dune land and a lot of like gravelly hills that are covered in that are shrub dominated by like, creosote bushes. And we hunt a sight houndsman hunt on open prairie. So we're hunting on the residual desert grasslands left over from the Pleistocene. And so we hunt in a Playa Lake is a, um, um, an ephemeral lake, a, a lake that fills up after a heavy rainstorm. And in New Mexico, there's several areas here in southern New Mexico that are mega playas from the Pleistocene left over these, these um, well, in the Pleistocene, it was a lot wetter in the Ice Age. And these areas would fill up with um, water and clay from the surrounding mountain ranges. And the desert prairies we hunt on are are massive. They have to be, obviously. Right. And uh, they have like a, a clay base with a lot of grassland, which is dying as the world is becoming hotter and drier right now in our area. We're losing a lot of our grassland. So we hunt on big, big prairie, basically. And there are still some left in the southern section of the state. The eastern half of New Mexico has tons of prairie left. And um, a lot of the Permian Basin is excellent for running dogs. But mm-hmm. here in New Mexico, we have these small, I guess, islands, if you will, of, of grassland left. And that's where we, that's where we congregate. <laughs> yeah. So, yep. Well, you start using big words and being historical, and, and I start to get a little bit hysterical. Um, it starts to, you know, I, I, I sit here and I think about, you know, things like Pleistocene and I'm thinking, Steve, we might've wanted to, uh, do a little more research before we started talking to, to Seth here. <laughs> what do you think? I'm a big nerd. I can't help myself. <laughs> no, 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 it, it, it's great. I enjoy, uh, listening to people who, uh, really have the vernacular. When I started fly fishing, uh, you know, everybody wanted to tell me the Latin names for the bugs that I was using to try to uh, catch a trout. And I'll confess that I'm not very good at that sort of thing. But it is uh, really interesting from the standpoint of when we have a guest on, it's good to know that they know their stuff. Yes, sir. They're not just, uh, you know, posing. And uh, obviously, you know your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I sure try. My, my, yeah, uh, my experience with uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, was uh, uh, an evening uh, uh, experience, uh, not of that kind, folks. Just relax. Uh, it was a uh, a trip from L.A. back to Tampa, Florida, in a motorhome, pulling a dolly with a little Mini Cooper on the back as we moved uh, Ella's daughter from L.A. back to Tampa, and we overnighted in a KOA in Las Cruces. So that's that's all I know about that particular area, although I did uh, I do know where Truth of Consequences is. And, uh, and I hunted in the uh, Lincoln National Forest, uh, Capitan Peak area there mm-hmm. in southern mm-hmm. New Mexico, uh, and have flown into Albuquerque, Albuquerque, as we're going to be doing uh, soon. But anyway, uh, I've always been intrigued by New Mexico. Um, a lot of uh, experience in listening and reading about it. But I think you live in a beautiful part of the world. And uh, 
it's just interesting to me. That I, I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing how you hunt these dogs and uh, and what kind of uh, uh, game that you pursue and all all that. I'm sure we're going to get into t- mm-hmm. today. Well, Seth, I want to I want to go back something, and Steve kind of set this up. You know, I've always been intrigued about New Mexico as well, and tell us. You are working as a USDA wildlife biologist, so you are in the game, so to speak. Tell us what the climate is as far as uh, hound hunting goes. How is it socially accepted? You know, what what does the future look like uh, as for that as well? What's what is it presently like, and and what do you predict for the foreseeable future? Well, for starters, New Mexico I think has such a diverse culture and. I'll be honest. I, I love New Mexico a lot. So I'm always first one on the the firing line to defend it if it ever came down to it. But, you know, outdoor opportunities wise, New Mexico is so diverse. I mean, we have so much public land. And again, I fight tooth and nail to keep that because that's what we need. And um, as far as hound hunting goes, I think because New Mexico has such a storied past of dry ground mountain lion hunting, there's a kind of mythos around it that I think hound hunters in general um, really benefit from in New Mexico. And I have a really unique perspective because I work in a, in, um, academia, academia. And so I see a lot of the other side, folks that have no hunting, fishing, outdoors Mm -hmm. background. And if they do, it's, it's peripheral at best. And, uh, I always am striving to present hound hunting in the very positive light that it is. It's a, well, as every listener here knows, it's, it's a lot more difficult than people think. And uh, most people are very, very surprised to hear how um, time and money consuming as well as um, dedication required to hound hunt. Most people just think that you just turn, you know, tree dogs loose and then you just sit there on your butt until they have something treed and you go show up. But there's a lot in between. <laughs> so, yeah. But in New Mexico, I think um, overall we have a very positive view. Well, neutral neutral or slightly positive view of hound hunting overall with the mass population, but among hunters, there's so much public land. There's, you know, we don't encounter the problems that Eastern houndsmen do where they're talking about, you know, having to stay on the back 40 and if the hounds run into somebody else's deer lease and causing trouble, you know, we don't really have that problem here. Cause I mean, just the Gila national forest alone is 3 million acres. So, and there's guys running bears and lions in there year year-round for lions and, and bears, you know, like crazy. So, And that's mm-hmm. just one small area of the state. So overall, I think um, I think the prospects of hound hunting in New Mexico are good for the future. Um, I think New Mexico, Idaho, Montana are big western states. Um, if we ever see an unfortunate decline in hound hunting, and in some states we already have, um, I think we'll be one of the last ones to go. So I'm feeling pretty safe right here sitting put in New Mexico. Yeah, and this is where I plan on staying because yeah. it's awesome here. Steve, you got any so. follow-ups for that? Well, I, yeah, and and I think that's great to hear because that definitely is not the norm across the United States as we all have this anxiety uh, about our uh, heritage here uh, and, and what the future may hold for us um, and, uh, and all, but I... Having been to New Mexico and seeing uh, how big it is, and and uh, and, and uh, why is it called the land of enchantment? 
You know, I don't know the specifics, but based on how I feel, I would say it's just because it's awesome and enchanting. <laughs> but I don't know yeah. the exact story. Yeah. I wonder if that reference goes back maybe to the Native, Native American culture or whatever. I've, I've always wondered about that. Um, I, I have a lot of little snippets here, the things that maybe won't matter, but, uh, you know, high lonesome books, uh, Dutch uh, salmon or salmon that had mm-hmm. uh, uh, wonderful, wonderful business in that he reprinted several of the old books. Uh, and I don't know if that is ongoing or not. If our listeners are familiar with uh, high lonesome books, uh, it, it has been a place for houndsmen to pick up volumes about hound hunting. And one of those volumes that I picked up was the Slash Ranch Hounds by Dub Evans. And I learned a little bit about that area of New Mexico, uh, where that mm-hmm. ranch was located and where they hunted. And, uh, uh you know, it, it's just, uh, a fascinating place. And, uh, uh, I want to go back. You know, I, I hunted bear there for a week uh, years ago. There was a guy named George Hobbs from Cliff. Uh, I think he was from Cliff, uh, New Mexico, later moved to uh, Oklahoma. That was a tremendous houndsman, and I got to experience all that. So I know I'm talking more here than I should, but I'm just really excited about uh, New Mexico, because I think it's one of those last places on the wor- in the world where things are truly uh, the way they used to be. Is that true? Is that a is that a reasonable assessment? I would say, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is for better or for well, mostly for worse, I'd say. But New Mexico is very poor. We're a very poor state because we have a very low population, and so we move a lot slower here than we would in more wealthy states, and. Uh, because of that, you know, we don't, it's hard to word cause I don't want to sound like I'm bashing it cause I love this place very much, but we just move at a slower pace here, you know? And mm-hmm. so we still have a lot of wild land left. And I mean, truly wild, like it's, it's not Alaska by any means, but there's a lot of, I mean, I'm standing here in my living room, I'm looking out my window and I'm looking at the Oregon, uh, Oregon mountain desert peak national monument. And it's just vast empty land and it's all open i hunt there all the time with my hounds so i mean we're very fortunate here to have a a very large amount of widely used but also seldomly used public land so it's yeah. uh yeah it's wonderful here i can't say enough good about this state <laughs> well i think i think no. that's um the way all of our romantic sides want to think about the lifestyle we live you know you take brett vaughn the title of his <clears throat> youtube videos is born 100 years too late uh you know steve and i've talked time and again with these hunters that are hunting on horseback chris todd and <clears throat> cleveland becky dwyer that are hunting hunting and chasing these hounds on horseback and we we uh, romanticize about being able to do that. So I don't think it's disparaging at all to talk about, you know, things moving at a slower, slower pace. You know, Bear Branch, Indiana is pretty daggone slow paced and I like it. You know, I like the pace of the, li- yeah. the lifestyle here. So, uh, Steve's a swinger. Yeah. Steve's the one that's living in the fast lane, man. He's down there in uh, that well, retirement community yeah. and there's, 
<laughs> that is high speed yeah, down there. Well, it, it, here's the deal. I came to Florida in the mid-60s when it was all ranch land and orange groves, pretty much, uh, central Florida. Uh, Florida's produced more cattle, um, feeder ca- or calves and mama cows and all that, than Texas, you know, for several years. And 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 that the old the old Florida is what I love. And recently, I found some new hunting south of me, a couple hours that it, it reminds me of the old days of Florida. Yeah. But uh, with the influx of of uh, uh, people moving into the state, someone said to the rate of a thousand people a day. Wow, it's crazy. You know wow. what's happening down here. Uh, but. Uh, I, I still, you know, try to cling to the old ways, you know, and every opportunity I get, I head for the mountains somewhere, you know, or, or the swamps of Arkansas or bottoms, anywhere that I can get back to those old ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we, we uh, most of us, I, I think, love to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's the thing about living here that's so nice is like, I live in a very good spot. I live right on the very edge of the city. And although Las Cruces is the second largest city in New Mexico, it only has 100,000 people. And I live out in a really rural area nearby. And so I just get my hounds every day and just walk out into the desert. I'm surrounded by several hundred thousand acres of public land. So it's very convenient. And I only live 10 minutes away from Brett Vaughn. So we, we chat and he's got a really cool setup. And he is one of the last remaining, in my opinion, like, I mean, I don't know how to say it, but he's like a true badass. Like, that guy's running around <laughs> on a horse, and he's awesome. That guy's a cool guy. So Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah well, you're doing... We really enjoyed having Brett on the program. He's... Yeah, he was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, you're doing some absolutely. work with Brett, and we're going to get to the hunting, the hounds, and all that stuff that you're using. But real quickly, tell us about the work you're doing with, with Brett on some of his videos and, and capturing some of the history of hound hunting in the Southwest. So I am an information addict. I I just can't help myself. I have to get as nerdy as possible on everything because I just want to learn. And I only have 80 years, hopefully, (laughs) but I I want to try to cram as much in there as I can. And so when I first started hound hunting, I didn't, I just hit the books as hard as I could. And that's just not good enough. I I really wanted to talk to people that have been there because you can learn volumes from people that have been doing it for 20 years or more, you can learn all the time they've been alive. You can learn that in five years. And Mm -hmm. so my whole strategy was you run pups with older dogs to make them much better. So I'm a pup. I'm looking to run with older dogs. So I just started searching out these guys that are more experienced than me. And uh, Brett's pretty active on social media and the internet, obviously. So uh, eventually I worked my way after meeting several other guys that knew Brett Eventually, I worked my way to shaking his hand and getting to know him, and I love the idea of outreach. I think that is what's going to keep hunting alive. We need to completely reframe our image, and we need to rebrand ourselves for the modern era, I think, and I think Brett does a perfect job of that. He, he really has a way of reaching out and showing the very positive and hardworking aspect of hunting with hounds, and so mm-hmm. that was really appealing to me, so I... I sat down with him and I said, you know, Brett, I, I listened to all these podcasts and uh, we're super underrepresented coursers. And, and Brett used to course a while ago. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I really want to archive the, 
the words of these old and really respected coursers. And the cool thing is a lot of these guys have dabbled in other hound sports, so there's plenty to talk about. But I was I told Brad, I said, I'm going to go around the country and either by phone or in person, I'm going to interview these these old coursers, and I just want to archive their their voice. And so it's just getting started. It's just in its infancy. I've only interviewed two people. I've interviewed David Heiss and Dean Bohannon, both of hey, those be, guys be, I respect Before we get there, Seth, I think, Steve, do we need to, do we need to go into the difference of coursing dogs and the scent hounds that were – would this be a good spot for that? What do you think, Steve? Well, yeah, I think so, Chris, because um, I think there, there are certainly people out there that don't know what coursing dogs are especially I would I would think uh, people back east here uh, that are used to the tree dog uh, sport. And, uh, you know, from my own experience being with the registries and all, we were familiar with lure coursing, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a throwback to the old field trial days that we had with the coon hounds before the days of the night hunts and so forth where we used uh, a drag type thing. And so, lest anybody thinks that you're talking about lure coursing, you're not. You're talking no, sir. About no, sir. We're coursing... Coursing wild animals with your dogs, correct? Yeah. Correct. Yes, sir. Yep. Yeah, no I'm lure coursing to be found out. around here. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. the, cor- so, oh. the, the heritage of the coursing dog goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. Uh, if and oh, I did before that, yeah, yeah. I, I did. <laughs> I did my research on on uh, coursing dogs. I have for a number of years, unlike the uh, Pleistocene era. But uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Salukis are an ancient Persian dog bred by royalty and and alive in the Middle East for who knows how long. I'm sure you do know, um, but. Like Steve said in a previous podcast, I don't want to teach the course here, so why don't you talk a little bit about the history of these coursing dogs and um, how you're using them now and the difference between scent hound and side hound. That's a big one. So the coursing type dog called a land race, which is a, just a type of dog. Like say you have land racing, land races of Siberian dogs. They're just curly-tailed, fluffy, mushing-like dogs. The, the North African, Middle Eastern, kind of Fertile Crescent area has had land races of sighthound-like dogs for so long, millennia. And they're just a long-legged, deep-chested, narrow-waisted running hound. And in those areas of the world, there's lots of open ground. And uh, basically, a difference between sighthounds and scent hounds is that, obviously, sighthounds hunt by sight. They do use their nose, but they have a very, very hot nose. They're like a poorer-nosed bird dog. They, they can pick up the scent of a rabbit or hare nearby, and they will go to it. But they're not going to stick their nose down and trail something. And mm-hmm. they're not going to be testing the wind over long distances like a bird dog can and, and hone in on that bird scent and go to it. They're going to be walking with their head up high, and they're going to be scanning the prairie looking for their prey to bolt. And like a cheetah, they're just going to give chase immediately. They don't, they don't open at all when they're running. They're completely silent. You need to keep your breath preserved because you are running at speeds that are amazing. So they are, they are purely hunting by sight, and they, you don't hunt at night with them unless you're using spotlights, but that's a whole other thing. We'll get there. But 
um, during the day, which is where, you know, the real deal is they are the animals walking with you. The dog is walking with you and we're waiting for the prey to jump up in front of you basically mm-hmm. and take off. And right. so scent hounds obviously are trailing you're, you're, the things that scent hounds can do. A sight hound could never do and, and vice versa. Right. So, um, okay. Well, that's and as the, far uh, as the breeze. Oh, go ahead. Go I ahead. just wanted to kind of take a 30,000 foot view right there, Seth, just so we could, cause <laughs> I, cause I did interrupt you during the historical interview part and you were talking about coursing dogs and these guys that were hunting coursing dogs. So I wanted to get that 30,000 foot view. So we knew where we were headed. So okay. let's, let's kind of circle back around to, cause I really think that the, the work you're doing there for, uh, these interviews is important to talk about. So you were mentioning two people so, that you've been interviewing so far. So I, I left it off there. Um, those guys have been doing it for a long time. They're both uh, older than 70. I believe uh, Dean just turned 70. Uh, they they give me a really unique perspective on coursing in America, which is what I'm most interested in, obviously. And they, especially David, they both, well, they both did, but David grew up on a farm in New Mexico here, and he... Well, how times have changed is remarkable. I mean, mm-hmm. we can see that in just the last 20 years. But, you know, back in America, coursing is a long-storied past here as well. Uh, Custer had greyhounds, and he loved running them, especially for coyotes. And in the 20s and 30s, everyone had greyhounds on their farm for coyote control. Really? And that is just, oh, yeah. And, and running coyotes with greyhounds is extremely popular. And it's a small community. You know, hound hunting is already a small community in the overall big game hunting and just outdoor community. Coursing is even smaller. I mean, we're such a tiny, tiny remnant group left. And among among coursers, coyote hunting is, you know, an even smaller community of that. So they're very tight-knit and very close. Everybody knows everybody. I kind of already feel that way in the overall coursing community in general. And, uh, yeah, so coursing used to be a very popular way as a recreational hobby as well as coyote control and uh it's just kind of as as we've lost large sections of prairie across the midwest and the west and as times have changed um especially from the wide-scale eradication efforts of coyotes um with poison and aerial gunning and stuff in the past um those hobbies have kind of fallen away Hmm. so it's a shame but i i just kind of want to keep them i want to keep those great stories and knowledge preserved as long as I can. So that's, that's why I'm out there. (laughs) Steve has conducted a lot of interviews over the years too. trying, I think with the same, some of the same goals in mind, he's currently writing those. Steve, you got any follow-up thoughts on that? Well, yeah, to preserve the history is so very important to me. Um, I, I'm old school, you know, history was was that one subject in college and in high school that I really enjoyed, <laughs> you know. Uh, mm-hmm. The rest of the time I was thinking about getting into the outdoors. But um, to preserve uh, the history, and, and in the writings that I've done, especially uh, for Clay Newcomb, our friend with Bear Hunting Magazine, um about these legendary bear dogs and to go back and to trace the ancestry of the dogs and the people that were influential and all that. It's just always been a, that, you know, that's just been my R and R so to speak. So I think it's very, very important that we archive these, these things that they get recorded. I 
I know that when I was with the AKC, uh, there was a big uh, a push on to hire an archivist to go into all of those old histories and records and things that were were there, uh, but not cataloged and not really available uh, to the public. So uh, I, I can see why you would want to do that, and I certainly have tried to do that you know, with my experience, especially with the Coonham breed, uh, because someday, you know, somebody's going to want to pick up that book or that volume or look at those videos or whatever it happens to be and say, you know, well, how, how did this come about? And there's the mm -hmm. record, you know. And uh, So it's, it's just an infancy for me. Say that again. Well, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you oh, off no, there. Um there was mine's just in its infancy. I'm literally just finishing editing my second one, so I haven't published anything yet, and I'm working on it. But you know, you'd mentioned Dutch salmon earlier, and I I had yeah. met Dutch just in the eve of his life, and it is an absolute blow to the hound hunting community in general, but also to the coursing community that we lost Dutch. He was a great man, and he was super inspiring for me to want to do these things because not only was Dutch a avid houndsman, but he was also an excellent writer, and so his yeah. his way of reaching out to the public and it's, it's just been super inspiring. And so I, I, I don't, um, I don't want to sit here and just heap praise all day cause I could, but I, I want to kind of emulate that and also kind of move it forward and keep it going. Cause, uh, his book, especially, uh, gaze hounds, I believe is what it's called. Uh, right. it has a longer title to it, but, uh, that book was amazing. I finished it in one day. I just sat down and just, powered through it all it was great and i was like you know what i really want to do something like this once i get a little bit more experience under my belt and so uh i'm just still not going to publish any of my own material because i i still need to get a little bit more gray in my beard i think but i surely would like to uh hear what other people have to say that have been doing it for a long time and try to learn from it so yeah it's amazing i think i think uh you and steve should maybe share some ideas you know off the podcast and stay in touch. Uh, Steve's got a lot yeah, of experience you. on on conducting these and capturing these history and uh, histories, and and you're looking at doing it on MP3 files and and video files and things like that. I think I think you guys could really uh, help each other out on that aspect of preserving Absolutely. the history of our heritage here. Um, Anything with the working dogs, you know, I I am so. Uh interested in you know it's same uh, same uh, that would that would be be terrific to spend some time with you well i think there's um, there's going to be and there's going to be a time here and the time is now really uh, so we just had our family christmas and and this is kind of a side path here a rabbit path but we're talking about side hounds so i'm going to take a rabbit path and uh um but my my brother bought my mom a record player okay my mom has 300 vinyl albums um, at least so uh, he bought her this so she could could enjoy those albums again okay so that conversation led to um, the progression in music and the way music is recorded over the years so 
the the music industry has found a way to continue to update with technology and we still know who Nat King Cole is and and you know some of the older historical type people and they have figured that out and we as a hounding community have to do the same thing we've got a you know you've got people who have been historical writers but now with technology you can't find anybody that'll read a book you know that's a rare Mm -hmm. thing so we've got to find a way to put those things into mp3 files or eventually we will i feel like we're going to lose them does that make sense yeah i agree yeah i totally agree yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. i do too and you know that's the thing with a lot of these it's so important to get these interviews really because what would it be like to have uh, uh well just pick anybody in our our world chris you know uh to to have a tape of of uh von plot or lester nance yeah or albert vaughn right or bill harshman or uh, mm. anybody that you can think of that was influential in the development of our scent hounds uh, how valuable would that be to sit down and actually hear no. their voice and, and hear their thoughts and uh, their, their philosophies, if you will, and so forth? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's it needs to be done, and mm-hmm. I I applaud you for your uh, uh, interest in doing that. For sure. It's funny. I got extremely lucky because I walked into a little quick story. If you guys don't mind, I'll explain how I got into coursing dogs because it's kind of a funny story. Um, So in 2013, I got a half English pointer, half pit bull from the pound. And she's the fastest looking dog I could have ever could find in a pound because I I didn't know where to buy a hound or anything. I had no interest even in hound hunting at the time. I just loved it, but I didn't ever think I could do it. And I knew she wasn't a trailing hound. So I was like, well, we'll just see what you can do. I've always loved quail hunting. And uh, for 25 bucks, that's the cheapest bird dog I could ever find. So I was like, I was in college or I just left college. So I was like, all right, let's do this on a budget. And I got this little puppy from the pound and I raised her up and I was single at the time. So I had a lot more time to devote to training her than I do now. (laughs) And so, uh, I trained her on quail and I trained her to retrieve waterfowl and she was pretty good on both. Um, she was way better of a waterfowl retriever than she was. Um, she wouldn't point very well. She's a little too game to point. Did you you have a fantastic finder? Did you have to have a break? Did you have to have a break stick to get the bird out of her mouth? (laughs) So sometimes my birds, well, she had a weird habit of every bird, the first bird of the season, she'd just eat it. So (laughs) she'd just come back. Yeah, she would just come back with feathers in her mouth. And I was like, I know you ate it, but she'd only eat the first one. Yeah. Yeah. So she'd only eat the first one. So it wasn't a problem. But anyway, she's a, you know, uh, so anyway, yeah. So I, I also would rent her out to waterfowl hunters. I would go with them. And the people, you'd be amazed how many people don't have duck dogs. They don't have anything to go out there and, swim through that cold water and get that bird. And so I was like, you know, there's a good way to make a little side money there. So I went out there and I'd sit in the blind with people and when they'd shoot a duck or a goose, she'd run out there and grab it for them. And she was really good at that. Nice. And, uh, we, yeah, we had a lot of fun with her doing that. And, uh, well, anyway, uh, I, I met my now wife. And so my quail training and quail hunting time kind of diminished as your time kind of does when you first meet somebody. So I was really excited to hang out with her and, kind of Penny's training got pretty rusty. Uh, Penny's my bird dog mix and, uh, her training got a little rusty and 
I just kind of lost interest in hunting quail, but I always lived out here, and so I always just kind of hunted rabbits and stuff for the pot. I like to eat them. And so she was always really good at finding cottontails, much to the detriment of a quail hunter, as any bird dog people know. (laughs) And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to repurpose her for finding rabbits. And so she quickly switched into that role and started finding cottontails for the gun. She's already completely gun broke, and she was a great fetcher. So I remember one day I was at work, and I was sitting out in the middle of the desert, and I kind of had a thought to myself. I thought, I wonder if she could catch a jackrabbit by a spotlight at night. Because she's been outrun a bunch during the day. But at night, with the lights, it changes the dynamic of the chase a lot. And so I was like, I wonder if she could do it. So I called my buddy, and I was like, hey, tonight you guys want to go out in the desert, and let's see if Penny can jump out of the back of a truck and catch a jackrabbit with a spotlight. And everyone's like, yeah, let's do it, let's do it. So we, we head out into the desert, and we shine a light on the first rabbit, and she doesn't know what's going on. But the second that rabbit moves in the light, it's about 30 yards away from the truck. Her eyes dilate, and she jumps out of that truck and takes off after that rabbit. And, I mean, she gets outrun, but we had so much fun watching her chase that rabbit that, that we were like, we have to keep doing this. This is so fun. And so we kept going, and she eventually learned how to do it better and was starting to succeed by herself at night. And I thought I was some kind of renaissance man, like <laughs> resurrecting this like ancient sport of coursing with this little mutt thing. And I had no idea, you know, that the community's out there. So I was like, I want to bring this ancient sport back. So I got way into it. I built this, I mean, it's pretty rudimentary, but I built a wooden release gate that mounts into the window of my Tacoma. And I would drive around the desert at night with a spotlight and some of my buddies. And we would just chase rabbits at night with Penny. And it was a blast. And then uh, I took my brother out one night and I said, my brother, he's a total, he's a perfectionist. He's a total gearhead. My brother likes everything to be the best he can possibly be or make it. And so we turned out Penny after a jackrabbit. She chased after it, and she got outrun. And my brother turned to me, and I remember it as clear as day. This was four years ago. He looked at me and said, we need greyhounds. And I was like, really? And he's like, yes, let's get some greyhounds. And so I was like, okay. So we spent the next seven months looking for greyhounds, and uh, eventually I found uh, Mr. Dean Bohannon in Lubbock, Texas, and I got my greyhounds, and it's been love ever since. So wow. I had a pretty weird start to it. And then luckily, I'd only had, so I got my first coursing dog. His name was Pronto, and I got him as a 12-week-old pup. I'd only had him for one week, and serendipitously, I met a, the guy I run with now. Um, shout out to Justin Heiss, my good buddy. Uh, I met him completely randomly at a batteries plus store, which is like a battery (laughs) store. And I just, my wife was sitting in the truck with me. He had his dog rig and he was at batteries plus with all his dogs in the back of his truck. And my wife just tapped on my shoulder and she's like, look, fast dogs. You know, she's like, look, you know, speed dogs. And I looked over and I was like, I got to find this guy. So I ran inside batteries plus and I found Justin and that like catapulted me to this end point where I'm at now. <laughs> so it was yeah. really awesome and I got super lucky. So yeah, it was, it's been pretty cool. It's a I crazy can, story. Everyone has one, I'm sure, but I can relate to that story. You know, when I started, when I started hound hunting, I, I would, uh, go look for guys that I saw with, uh, dog boxes in the back of their truck. That's how I met Bob Watts and, and, um, you know, some of my early mentors as well. So, can't be shy about it that's for sure definitely not yeah and I was, i'm a seeker so i was out looking for these guys but 
like I said, I just got completely lucky when I met my buddy Justin. And like I said, he's been an absolute mentor to me. And we, he lives very close to me too. Um, we're, we're one of the few sighthound runners here in Southern New Mexico. It's a small community. And, uh, I was very fortunate. He only lives about 20 minutes away from me. So we run every weekend together and it's been just phenomenal knowing him. So yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, I've got can it. we get into a discussion a little bit about the dogs and the various kinds and, uh, sure. you know, what, what breeds tend to, to do better or what the differences are, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, characteristics of the different breeds, um, you know, I, I would, uh, I would be interested in that. And I think maybe our listeners would. Let's do that. Uh, you're using, yes. What are you using right now? So right now laying on my bed over here is two Saluki Greyhound mixes. And what's important as with any hound hunter knows is to breed to your terrain. You need to breed a dog that fits what you're running, what, what kind of terrain you're working on. And there's, two major kinds for serious hair coursers and uh, there's greyhounds and salukis there's also borzois and there's whippets there's other um there's stag hounds which are a unique like american creation and we can get to all that in a minute and i can make it brief but greyhounds and salukis for jackrabbits are king and i am an avid jackrabbit hunter i got nothing against running other things but a jackrabbit tests a coursing dog like no other quarry. They're incredibly endurant. They're extremely agile. They can accelerate faster than any dog, and they are just stellar athletes. And so hmm. they truly are the the tip of the spear for a coursing dog to catch. And so uh, salukis and greyhounds are most popular because we're lucky that greyhounds really haven't been completely ruined by the AKC. <laughs> no offense to any of my AKC <laughs> listeners, but in the coursing no. field... No. In the coursing field, it's no a lot different than the hound field. <laughs> yeah. So, like, in the coursing field, um, you know, we still need these dogs that are that are really rugged, hardworking dogs that have been selected for their working traits only. And so the greyhound, fortunately, has a storied past, obviously, as a racing animal. but And we call those hot bloods in the, like, jargon. And there's also greyhound lineages that are still alive today that are bred specifically for their hunting abilities. And those are commonly used um, throughout the Midwest and Great Plains today still, and we call those cold bloods. And so you have this excellent well of different kinds of greyhounds with unique abilities and talents. And then also you have the Saluki, which uh, still luckily has retained a lot of its working ability. And Salukis are um, a lot more rare and so finding a good one is a lot of work. But when you find a good one, it's really a gold mine. They're bred more for endurance. So I, I got to preface this to all the listeners that when I say these dogs aren't as fast as a greyhound, I don't want to make it sound like they're not fast. A Saluki is so much faster than any dog most people have ever seen. Their minimum speed is when they're running after their prey, after miles of running is about 30 miles an hour. And this is after chasing something for three miles. So, I mean, they can max out at around 42, 43, and a greyhound can do 44, 45. So these are incredibly fast animals. And a greyhound is bred to sprint, and they mm -hmm. put everything forward with everything they've got. And so in the first two and a half minutes, a greyhound is just going to 
really put the hammer down on its prey. It's going to turn it a bunch. It's going to really force the animal into a hard sprint. And a Saluki is better at playing the long game. They will chase an animal with a little bit more control, obviously at high speeds, but they're going to not overshoot the animal as much as a greyhound does. And they're going to stay. It it always kind of looks like with a good Saluki that you've tied a rope from its nose to the base of the quarry it's chasing. And they look Mm -hmm. like a school of fish chasing after that jackrabbit. And this is all happening at 40 plus miles an hour, you know, but they, they will chase their quarry for long distances. So Salukis are expert long distance runners and greyhounds are incredible sprinters. And so the goal is, is to try to blend those two breeds together to make this perfect running machine. And so hybrids between greyhounds and Salukis are very popular. And the degree of mixing of the two breeds is what most people strive to do to maximize their abilities for their terrain. And so I was taught by some people I really respect and who I run with very frequently is to maximize your group's talent, your pack's talent by mixing two of one kind of talent and one of another. So we prefer to have two speed bred dogs and one Saluki, one endurance bred dog. And so those two speed dogs will really, really cook that hair in the first two and a half minutes. They'll put the intense pressure on him, force him into an energy sapping sprint. And as we all know, starting and stopping, accelerating burns a lot of energy. And so when those greyhounds force that jackrabbit to turn, he's got to not only stop, turn, but he's got to accelerate in another direction as rapidly as possible. And that's burning that rabbit's energy. All the while that Saluki is hanging back, a good smart Saluki is going to hang back from those speed dogs a little bit. And he's just going to watch that rabbit and keep the pressure on it, but not force himself to really, really exert himself really hard. And then when the time comes, it's like they found a second gear and that Saluki will come up and just chase that rabbit down and ideally catch him. So, so it's a, it's an art. So they, the, they work together as the, a team. The, the greyhounds are out there because of their speed and because of their sprinting. Uh, they don't handle the corners very well, right? Is that they what I'm hearing you can't. say? And so your yeah, Saluki's hanging difficult. back. When the Saluki sees the Greyhounds overrun the corner, they're a little lesser speed, and they can kind of hang in that corner a little better and keep the pressure on. Is that what you're saying? Yes, sir. And okay. also, they, um, they're they just better at just, um, since they have a little bit of time to react, because they're a little bit behind the Greyhounds, mm-hmm. and not much, just a little bit. Right. They have more time to react. Yep. So they're going to take advantage of that turn better. Yeah. Sounds so cool. it's all happening. It's... Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Can I have? Can we have some questions now? You bet. Sure, you need please. To speak up a little bit. Okay. I, kind of soft. Extremely interesting stuff, and I'm sitting here trying to process this. Okay, when you do the crossbreeding of the Saluki with the Greyhound, is there, as when we're breeding for mules, we use a Jack and a mare, is there any preference for using a male of one breed uh, to a female of the other? Or so, what, are, what is the criteria for choosing a breeding pair when you want to create a crossbred Greyhound Saluki? So I want to preface all these answers to all these questions with, this is just my opinion, and also just what I've gathered from people that I really respect okay. that have been doing this a long you're, time. So well, there, the there's a million different... Us. <laughs> okay well uh, there may be some other because we know nothing <laughs> okay so um 
as far as I'm aware and the people that I've talked to that I really respect, as far as picking a sire and dam for your litter, I want to pick dogs that put jackrabbits on my tailgate. So as far as male and female and the differences between the two, as far as I'm aware and as far as I know with my limited background in biology and genetics, is that it doesn't seem to matter with with the dogs as much. Um, I just, if I have an, so I have a, a young female out here that's just chilling on my couch and I'm going to cross her to a excellent Saluki that my buddy has. And my goal is to up the percentage of Saluki in my dogs so that they have better heat tolerance and better resilience over rough terrain. And so okay, as far as I'm aware, the male quick. and female. Yeah. Real quick Say that again. Question. Now is she, is she a purebred greyhound or is she a cross? She's a cross between a track bred greyhound, a hunting bred greyhound, and a Saluki. So she's eighty five percent greyhound and fifteen percent Saluki. Basically, yeah, she's basically going to be uh, three quarter Saluki then. Yeah, roughly Correct. those puppies are I going mean, to be. Yeah, her, yeah they're going to be about five eight. Her offspring. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And that's a good mix there. Retains some of the sprinting power of the greyhound, but also we're we're trying to up the resiliency and long running ability of the Saluki. So, you know, as I was thinking about the Salukis, I don't want our listeners to uh, confuse, although they may be a little similar in looks, the Saluki with the Afghan hound. Right. Yes, the Salukis aren't, aren't quite as hairy. They're they're a lot less hairy, right. and luckily a lot of Salukis are still bred for hunting, so they don't quite have those extreme features as an Afghan hound does. Um, they're a lot right. more mild-looking. So. What I else had you got, another Steve? question, but it'll come back around, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I kind of want to talk talk about, describe for us a typical hunt that you take your side hounds on. I, I want to look at that okay. part of it and see, you know, how you talk about, are you free casting dogs? Or are you rigging dogs? Or are you driving around to, you know, run us through that whole thing. Yes, sir. So we have two main styles here in New Mexico. And so this is how I do it. When we are hunting on deeded private land, we use our vehicles. We have uh, specialized Polaris Rangers with like release gates on them, boxes that the dogs ride in. I think that's what scent houndsmen call rigging, but I'm not quite sure that on that. Right. And so they ride in these boxes and we just putt along on the prairie going about two to three miles an hour while we have a scent hound that's running around looking for jackrabbits that maximizes our surface area oh. and obviously brings us two more rabbits. That's the goal. We're training one right now. She's a silly little thing and she's still learning. She's a pup, but she'll get there. My old bird dog, Penny, she was amazing at it, but she tore her ACL hunting for us last season. So she's now in an early retirement. Mm. So we are putting along and the scent hound is running around looking for jackrabbits. If we're in the vehicle, then a jackrabbit gets up, we come to a stop, release the greyhounds and the salukis, and we take off after the dogs and watch the whole chase front row seats, which is one of the most exciting things I've ever done in my life. And so that's how I get all those incredible pictures. So do you, pick, so up, if, do you pick up the scent hound and put it in the rig or do you uh, let nope. it run? <laughs> nope. Okay. We let her run. And so she'll catch up about five minutes later. So um, she... Uh, to the listeners, um, after, let's say, a four-minute run, which would be a very long run, that's an incredible feat of, en- of endurance for all parties involved, the hare and the dogs, 
usually by the end of that run, that scent hound's 1,500 yards behind, sometimes more. No way. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. These things are, my brother said it perfectly because he likes to hunt with me. To those who have never seen a sight hound run, it is extremely difficult to describe. <laughs> so in, they are like cheetahs. I, the first, I had never seen a greyhound in person before I got mine. And he was outrunning my English pointer mix by the time he was five months old. Hmm. So they are just unbelievable running machines. And so uh, that's if we're driving. If you're walking, which is what we do most of the time, you're walking along in what we call a gallery. So you'll have men and women walking in a line together with their dogs on slip lead or free casted. If you have dogs that behave and stay around because their job isn't to find the rabbit. You don't want the greyhounds and salukis out running around long distances, like a bird dog trying to sniff for them. Cause they're just burning up their precious energy. Yeah. That's what the bird dogs are for. They run around and look for them. And, uh, when, then when they kick up a hair, then you send your set of dogs after the hair. And so, uh, they will give chase. You watch through binoculars and, uh, you see what happens, but it's so much more fun in a vehicle because you can get to watch the whole chase. And if you have a horse, you can just chase after him in a horse. That's how they used to do it back in the day. But I like my Polaris because it doesn't eat hay or attract flies <laughs> or poop. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just parked out there silently waiting. So, <laughs> but yeah, so that's the process. It's very rudimentary, honestly. Um, it's very basic. It's one of the most, I would say, um, yeah, rudimentary forms of happening because it doesn't really take much training. You really need to just train your hounds to come back after a chase. They need to return to you after a long race. And uh, they need to stay around you when you're walking along looking for a jackrabbit because prairie jackrabbits will hold like you wouldn't believe. You essentially got to step on them to get them to come up because their first defense is to hide. And so they'll be hidden randomly in the grass and they'll come up right in front of you. As our quail hunters know, it'll startle you when they come jumping up in front of you and take off running. And then the hounds give chase and you're hooting and hollering. And if you have binoculars, they're up. And if you have a rig, it's pedal to the metal. So... Um, and then they just chase after it and, and capture and kill the prey. They don't, uh, a lot of people ask, well, do they fight over the rabbit and stuff? No, definitely not. They're so exhausted after they catch that rabbit that they just neatly kill it and they set it down and they just catch their breath because it is extremely exhausting to catch a jackrabbit. Average chase for us last year, I'm a big data monkey. I, I keep all this data. Our average cha uh, chase was two minutes, 38 seconds last year. We wow. had an 80% catch rate, which is stellar. I'm extremely proud of that. And uh, the uh, longest chase we had was four minutes and 41 seconds. And the shortest one we had was 58 seconds. That rabbit made a mistake. He tripped and made a blunder. So they usually are not that short. So it's an incredibly um, high-end endeavor to catch a jackrabbit. And the dogs are working very hard. If a good day, you're going to have mm, two races a day, probably two chases a day. That's all they got, really. A Saluki sometimes can get more in, depending on how difficult and long the chases were. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't like to, I don't like to push my dogs too hard because you're just asking for injuries. And when dogs are running almost 50 miles an hour, things are going to happen when they're tired and careless. So, so how, many, how, many dogs like to, you, how many dogs are you releasing on a hare? You know, if you've got a gallery of people there, how many people mm -hmm. are in the, in the uh, gallery? And how many of these side hounds are you turning loose at one time? So there's definitely a point of diminishing returns with the quantity of dogs you're running. And so ideally we like three. So, uh, three or four is perfect for us in our tall grass, 
But if you're running on, say, um, like agricultural setups in West Texas, the, the, you can run as few as two dogs. One dog is essentially never going to catch a hare. They're too powerful, they're too athletic, and they're too agile. Mm-hmm. They're incredibly good at wearing a dog down through turning. But you need at least two dogs. But really, if you start to get more than four dogs, unless you have puppies that are kind of just slower and not really in the, in the race as intense, the more dogs you add to that, you're asking for collisions and trips and knocking into each other. And if the hair turns and there's so many dogs slamming into each other, it's just a disaster out there. Right, and so, right. again, these things are running at such speed that when they slam on the brakes, the guys coming up behind them at 50 miles an hour are going to crash into them. Might and need. so you really want to keep your three or four is perfect. Yep. Nice. Nice. Hang on just a second, Seth. We dropped Steve. I'll let it this part, but I'm going to try to get him back in here. Oh, no problem. No problem. Is everything going good so far? Oh, it's awesome. Great. You're doing an awesome okay, job. Okay, cool. Cool. Yep. Great. Let me try to get him back. Steve. Hello. Are you there? I ran away. I am. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Uh, so. The miracle of uh, the cell phone. It just, uh, my world went blank. I hear you. I didn't even I, notice that you dropped out. I did, well, I, <laughs> yeah, I was so, just blabbering and didn't even know. <laughs> so we were, no, this is exactly what I, we need our guests to do, Seth. You're doing an outstanding job. So uh, we you got guys to the. go right ahead. I'll listen to the tape. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. So we'll pick it up, back up with the. Uh, interview right now okay so we've talked about the gallery and how many hounds we're running this sin hound what type of sin hound are you running so honestly you can use any dog that wants to hunt and uh i've seen people and and this is actually not a super common uh thing some people really aren't using a scent hound or some Mm -hmm. kind of gun dog or anything like that most of the time you can just walk along but you know, I don't like walking for five hours to find a jackrabbit, and I think you walk past a lot of them. So I want to have something at least trying to find them. And okay. so uh, right now we're using a Walker July mix that my buddy got for uh, from a friend, but I've used Penny. She's half English Pointer, half uh, Pit Bull, and she mm-hmm. was fantastic at it. And I've seen people literally just running like little mutts, just little 35-pound mutts running around looking for them. You just need something that's making noise. Um, stirring up the grass and, and sniffing, keeping that nose to the ground. Something and that really just maximizes your ability. Yeah. You got it. Yep. It could be anything. It could be a chihuahua. If it's hunting hard, it's okay. Just need some out there looking. Well, so. well would, it, would a beagle be suitable for that kind of work? Uh, sure. Um, the thing is that our ground, as, as dry ground people know, it doesn't hold scent well. And also, hares yeah. uh, don't really give off very much scent. And, and when I say hare, of course, I'm speaking of a jackrabbit. Uh, there is a difference between jackrabbits and cottontails. And so cottontails, they have a little musk gland on them, and they give off more scent than a hare does. And, and hares are very difficult to ground trail and, and also just to smell when they're even in their bed. And mm. so a beagle would be okay, but for the same qualities that I was speaking about earlier, just a dog running around looking, just trying. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I would yeah. I would think that yeah. bird dog mix would be outstanding because they're they're more of like a uh, a quartering type dog that's that's working on mm-hmm. air currents rather than trying to grub out a scent track on that ground. Totally agree, and that was my idea. Is that gun dogs and gun dog mixes seem to be the best because they got a high drive, they air scent well, and they got a lot of energy, so they're ready to run all day looking for you. Because we may walk you know, eight miles, but that bird dog, Penny would run 15 or more, you know, in a big pattern out in front of us looking for him. And what's nice is that sometimes you'll kick a rabbit up in front of you 50 yards or more, and mm-hmm. it'll take off into the knee high grass and it'll get lost. Your sighthounds will run out there to give chase and they'll lose it in the grass. And if you have that bird dog out there running around, she marks the rabbit for them and takes off after it. And she'll lead the sighthounds to the rabbit. So I would have lost several chases without Penny, but she was able to be like, he's over here, he's over here. And the sighthounds <laughs> will run up there. And they got so good at telling her body language. Because to all our bird hunters that know, when that bird dog's about to find it, something it's looking for, that tail starts going a million miles an hour. And my sighthounds would already start squalling and howling when they would see her tail going crazy. And they would be bolting up there to run up to her when her tail started going crazy. And boom, there that jackrabbit would jump up right in front of her and off they go. Yeah. So yeah. it was pretty, it's awesome. I'm getting excited just talking about it, guys. <laughs> I'm getting excited talking about it, too. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had Jared Moss on, and we talked about the importance of nonverbal communication. That's how dogs communicate 90% of the time. So it's no surprise that, obviously, you've had to put those dogs out there, give them plenty of repetitions, let everybody know what their job is. But it's no surprise that those side hounds pick up on the body language of that, that uh, scent hound. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're very into they're very intuitive animals, and the, the thing I like about the sighthounds is they couldn't be more opposite from that bird dog. I mean, they're very reserved, they're very laid back, they're very focused on their job, but they're not going insane. They're just they're mild, and they're just watching like a bunch of hawks when they're walking across the prairie. Those heads are up, and they're just scanning like a radar dish, and they're mm. just waiting. And I mean, the slightest movement, and their heads just boom shoot to it immediately. It's incredible. And we've been standing around the truck and we let my dogs out to go to the bathroom before we start hunting. And they'll just be standing there with their ears up listening and even the slightest rustle in the grass. And they'll go over there and check it out. And they've jumped jackrabbits right by our trucks before. So, I mean, it's pretty incredible how in tune they are. They don't look like they're hunting hard, but they are. They're, they're really paying attention hard. So, and like I said, they have a unbelievable acceleration. The, my female, she can accelerate faster than my male because she's lighter she can go zero to 40 in 1.4 seconds so she is gone like the second she sees something moving yeah okay so, i have a my question. male yeah go ahead oh go ahead, go ahead please my male has a one minute 38 second mile so that's all i was gonna say he can they can just fly like you wouldn't believe so anyway continue no the question i would have uh it would be about introducing puppies. Uh, you know, at what age do you start them? Uh, you know, we have a, a a situation with trail hounds that we don't like to start a puppy too early, especially if he has a lot of hunt and desire, because he will basically run dog tracks. Well, that's not a problem with you. I would imagine mm-hmm. you want that puppy to run up with the adults. But at what point I would think that your your concern would be that the pup maybe couldn't keep up and would be discouraged 
by not being able to keep up with the older dog. Can you explain a little bit about how you enter, uh, you know, introduce the puppies into uh, into the the game? Sure. So uh, there's a bunch of di- different wisdoms on this, but me personally, because coursing is such an extreme athletic endeavor. I don't like to start puppies out hunting for real until they're about nine months old out on the prairie because you can really hammer their young joints until those growth plates have closed. You really don't want to be just smashing those dogs joints up to bits when they're chasing those older dogs because they're not, they they can definitely keep up at that age, but they're not going to be contributing. They're going to be learning a lot, but they're, um, I, I just, uh, I think it's unwise to really beat up their young bodies. If you really want a dog to run a long time, which I'm all about quality over quantity. I only have two right now, and I really put a lot of time and effort and resources to keeping them healthy because if I lose one, I'm out. And so I'm really careful about where I'll run them. And as far as puppies go, I start them very young just following me, and they follow my pack. And as you guys know, good dogs learn good habits from better dogs. And so my pack just follows me along. I'm an exercise addict. So I'm out every day walking. I do about a 3K every day and they follow me and the puppies just follow me along. And then they will make these tiny chases after jack or cottontails and stuff. They see kangaroo rats and stuff. And as they age, I'll start taking them out to the prairie more and more, getting them used to the big prairie. And by eight to nine months is when I'm going to start introducing them to open field coursing with the adults. And so some guys start them a little younger. Some people wait a little longer, but I want them to start running when they're young enough to have that kind of sponge mentality of their brain where they're still really excited about copying adult dogs, copying their elders, because the only way they're going to learn is by seeing an adult dog. That was a big problem of mine. Um, I was running them a little bit when they were young, and uh, I just thought maybe if you just gave them enough pep talks, (laughs) they would be able to do it. But when I started taking them out, when they got old enough to come out with my friend Justin's dogs, my puppies were like, oh, man, this is a lot harder than I thought. They need to learn that you just need to keep running. Like a jackrabbit is not going to get caught easy, and you need to see the older dogs, even when you're tired and you don't think it's possible, keep running because you will catch that jackrabbit if you work hard enough. And sometimes you won't. Sometimes that jackrabbit's just too good. We've had several that... We laugh that when they get away, they look like they're doing push-ups out there and just kind of grinning because there's some <laughs> jackrabbits that are just, yeah. There are some we do honestly believe, I do at least, that they're uncatchable. I mean, they're just incredible athletes, the jackrabbits too. Hmm. And most people, when I take, I love taking out new people. And when new people see them run like that, everyone's like, I had no idea a jackrabbit could even run like that. And I was like, yeah, they're, uh, they're built to run. So, but yeah, um, I like to start puppies around nine months on the open field. So you know, talking about the yeah. athleticism of a jackrabbit. When I was a very young kid, uh, my my grandparents lived in Tucson, and right down the street from their subdivision was a um, open desert area. I mean, it still had cactus and and uh, prickly pear and and all kinds of native bushes out there. But we used to go down there with my cousin Mark to uh, to to look for jackrabbits and this is kind of the i remember how those jackrabbits bolting out from from this cover and just i mean looked like just flashes running down these trails mm-hmm. just, but i i can't you know it's been so long but the funny part of this story is <clears throat> it was actually my uncle mark uh 
carried a spear and said he was going to spear a jackrabbit. And I remember him throwing that thing. <laughs> he never even came close. I mean, there wasn't any way. Oh, that... my goodness. <laughs> that They're so fast. Yeah. yeah. They are, you know, and I admire them so much. And, and that's, if I may tangent real quickly, um, when, you know, a lot of people, when I explain coursing to people, like I said, I'm always definitely trying to put a, our best foot forward. And people are like, don't you think that's kind of cruel that, you're chasing them down with dogs. And I say, well, I guess I would counter that with several thoughts and, and I'll make them brief. But the first one I would say is tell me what jackrabbit in the wild. I'm a wildlife biologist. I see this firsthand. Like, tell me what jackrabbit out there is on his deathbed with his like jackrabbit family around him being like, give the farm to the kids. You know, like that never <laughs> happens. Every jackrabbit that has ever died was killed by a predator, died of starvation, died of the elements or died of disease. So mm-hmm. first off, like, that jackrabbit doesn't really care. Like he just doesn't want to. And then also, you know, when you shoot a jackrabbit, they don't have any fathom of what a gun is or what a bullet is. They just hunker down or just kind of, you know, they don't really know what's going on. But when you pursue them with hounds, you're tapping into their only known defense, which is to run with incredible ability. And so you're putting the ball of defending himself in his court. You're, you're giving that rabbit a fairest chance he's ever going to get as far as a human hunting a jackrabbit. And so you're giving them the ability to defend himself by taking powerful flight. And, can, and they run with he Yeah. Can, he can turn around and whip those dogs if he wants to, right? Oh, man. It happens. <laughs> it definitely happens. He has that option. I, I was thinking of another Jerry Clower story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, they are amazing. Well, that so is. They, they, we've had some that can just run out. We've had some that can out sprint our greyhounds, and we've had some that can outlast our salukis. I mean, they're amazing, amazing, amazing. I think that's an interesting point that you bring up because, and I don't want to go too far down this path because this is so interesting about these coursing dogs, but. Uh, we've got to quit this class system in hunting where we sit back and, and we say, well, this form of hunting isn't as good as my form of hunting and, and vice versa and, and all this stuff. But when I hear people say that, that, uh, hound hunting, I'm not sure that I like hound hunting because, uh, it just seems like that the game has an, or the hunter has an unfair advantage. And we've touched on that a little bit, but, we we can't compare the two. You know, I think you did a wonderful mm-hmm. job right there, and that applies to a raccoon, a lion, a bear, a hog, whatever. You know, shooting shooting them is one way of hunting, but this is another honorable way to hunt, and we've got to stop killing our and eating our own here within the hunting community. So I'm really totally glad that agree. you laid that out. I think we all need to stand together because I think, and and again, this is from the inside looking in and also the outside looking in, but you know, we're losing our hunting and fishing rights nationwide in a lot of jurisdictions. And I think we need to stop, you know, I guess this is a symptom of the overall like poisoning of the American political discourse, but I think now is not the time for us to be polarized. Now is the time for us outdoorsmen of all stripes to stand together I think that's so important and we need to support um, organizations like backcountry hunters and anglers. You know, they, for instance, they just made 
the state legislator in New Mexico just made mountain lion trapping illegal. And stand where you may on that issue. This is not about that. This is about, you know, when, when, when wildlife biologists and uh, backcountry hunters and anglers, we all stood up to oppose that bill. And mm-hmm. with sound science backing, that's what I think we need to rally around. It's peer-reviewed literature and facts. Because in today's world, I think people, they, they think by feeling, right. and feeling isn't thinking. And, and I think all of us hunters need to put aside our feelings and actually look at a lot of the things that we do in a more positive light with each other and stand together. Cause that's how we're going to defend ourselves in the future. Cause I think in my generation, hound hunting is going to become even more of a minority sport, even more of a, a niche sport. And I think we all need to be allies with one another, hog hunters, coon hunters, coursers, coyote hunters. We all need to stand together and have one unified voice to defend ourselves nationwide. And, one, uh, yeah, one, I, I one can't thing that, that I would enough. say, you know, kind of more, in, uh, one thing I would say to people who say that hunting with hounds is an unfair advantage, I want to, I want everybody to put this timeline into perspective. Okay, there are there are drawings on cave walls of people pursuing games with dogs and a spear. Okay, so you've mm-hmm. got them chasing game, catching game with dogs and a spear. If that is such an efficient way to hunt, then why did they develop, why did people start hunting with archery equipment and firearms? You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Obviously, it was so, the caveman, you go back and you tell the caveman that him turning dogs loose gave him an unfair advantage. I don't think that story yeah. is going to wash. So that's the third point I always bring up in the defense of coursing is that Look, I go out there, I drive an hour one way, sometimes two hours one way to drive around or walk around the desert for hours to kick up one jackrabbit so that I can hoot and holler and have almost a heart attack from excitement for two and a half minutes, possibly get out, run, (laughs) gather up my dogs, do that all over again and then go home. I I run two rabbits a day. You tell me any gun hunter that would be happy with an 80% success rate shooting at two rabbits a day and then going home. That's never going to happen. And like at night... You know, a guy, we could all go out and get 22s and go out at night and shoot 50 rabbits in one night. I ran in one season, I ran 27 rabbits. That's it. In five months of hunting, I ran 27 rabbits. And that's it. I'm going to tell any gun hunter that would be happy with shooting at 27 rabbits in five months if they're dedicated rabbit hunters. They would throw that gun in the trash and pick up accounting. You know what I mean? Like, and the thing is, we don't I mean, care. We don't care if you want to archery hunt deer or you want to gun hunt or what you want to do. Just don't throw us under the bus because what we're doing is, is right. no less advantageous or no more advantageous or we are not any less invested than what you do and we're not less passionate about it. So this is not right. the time to be, you know, holding people out as bait and saying, well, you can have the hound hunting, just don't come after my archery hunting or you can have the trapping, but don't come over after my hound hunting wow we got we exactly. got sidetracked but but no, i think that needed stuff. to be said I mean, yeah yeah i totally agree it's, it's very important stuff the, yeah on the other side of that coin and this is something that i struggle with you know i've always had the problem with people say well you're hunting bear uh you know with dogs or you're hunting deer with dogs uh, that's not something that i do but it's uh, very popular down here in Florida and all, and they say that's not fair chase. And I've always struggled with the idea of, of 
completely ambushing that animal where he has no defenses, no way of knowing in this world that you're there and shooting the animal. And I have no problem with them doing that, okay? The problem comes is when you tell me that what I'm doing, when I'm giving that animal, as you said, uh, every chance to employ everything in his repertoire of tools uh, for survival to get away from the dogs, uh, you know, just went on a bear hunt in, in Virginia, and uh, Chris, in West Virginia, mm-hmm. and, and see, you know, those, those black bear have all the advantages, you know, over the hounds. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, and, and so I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, it's just as big a stretch for a hounds person to understand the still hunter, the spot and stalk hunter, uh, in the methods they use, but we all have to make that, uh, you know, we, we have to bridge that, that gap and say, okay, that's your heritage, that's your sport, it's good, that's what you enjoy doing, humanely kill the animal, uh, maybe you don't give it a, a, a fighting chance, as, as Jerry Clower would have said, but that's okay. But you need to understand that what I'm doing is is just as reasonable. In and fact, honorable. It, and honorable, yes. And, and if you break it down, I'm probably giving that animal a lot more chance than you are, you know. But I'm not, I'm not going to criticize you for that. I'm going to support you in that. But I need you to support me in what I'm doing too. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, this is a, this is an important discussion to have for sure. Hey, Seth. You know, it's funny. There's go, oh, ahead. go ahead. You finish finish. Oh, I was thought, just gonna, and Then we. I want to move. There's on. so much content to cover. Yeah, I mean, we there's yeah. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to keep going on that vein, but <laughs> let's change subject. Let's go for it. Well, we're we're running on about an hour and twenty minutes. Uh, of of this show and it's it's a great and we could go on and on and on but uh steve's hauling some material up there for uh the grand american and then uh want to be respectful of everybody's time here but real quick give us a good story for that you that you've had you know a hunting adventure that you've taken give us a good story okay so uh, last year I, I, I document all of our races with photos when I can and, and take some, some data on it. Last year I had a race that was four minutes, 41 seconds long. The rabbit comes up, the dogs give chase. Not this, this race is so amazing. I bring it up to all my hound hunting friends. So the rabbit comes up and the dogs give chase. And during the first two and a half minutes, this rabbit is just working the dogs and it looks like he is never going to go down. I mean, he would turn on a dime the greyhounds overshoot him. The saluki stay on him. They get back in the chase. We're they're passing the ball back and forth to each other. It's been excellent. The rabbit circles all the way back around and runs within yards of our parked vehicle and trailer. And mm-hmm. we were like, oh, you know, you're clinching up because you're like, please, dogs, do not hit that vehicle. And so they, the rabbit shoots by the truck. The dogs are in hot pursuit right behind him. They pass it. We fly by. We're hooting and hollering the whole time in the vehicle. Then at about the three and a half minute mark, as we're running, I'm taking pictures of the race. They're about 150 yards away from us in our Polaris. I'm taking pictures of this race. A wild golden eagle 
flies down out of nowhere and tries to swoop the rabbit away from the dog. This is all going like 30 miles an hour. The wild eagle swoops mm. down and tries to take a, the rabbit right out in front of my dog's face. And I turned to my, the driver and I was like, did you see that? You know, like, oh my God. And he's like, get pictures, get pictures. So I, I get my camera back up. The eagle flies up, banks up high, makes a circle, comes back down for another dive. And I get pictures of him diving the whole way down. And then he banks out of his dive. At the last second, he chickens out. And my dog sees the, the eagle coming. He looks up. I have a picture of him looking up and seeing that eagle. He makes a just absolute breaking sprint for the rabbit. He tries to grab it before the eagle gets to it. No and the eagle, the eagle goes within feet over his head. And that rabbit is just right in front of him. The rabbit also sees the eagle because it just missed. The eagle just missed the rabbit, too. So as soon as that eagle starts to dive, that rabbit slams on the brakes, jumps to the left about two feet. My greyhound overshoots him slightly. The rabbit makes a fish hook turn. The eagle also overshoots the rabbit. And that rabbit takes off running, and everyone has to try to get back on it. The dogs are exhausted. They've been chasing him for over three minutes, three and a half minutes at this point. They chase the rabbit until four minutes, 41 seconds, until finally the dogs succeed and caught him. Wow. And it was amazing. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And so I got pictures of the whole chase. I can send them to you guys later. But, yeah, it was I amazing. Like, that was yeah, it was awesome. So, it sounds like a very high energy sport. I it it, it uh, I always like watching the uh, uh, videos on YouTube of the coursers and things like that. But to hear you talk about it and hear the energy that you that you put into it and the way you describe it, it makes me want to be involved even more. Or at least see it, you know, and be involved in a hunt. What What do you think, Steve? Oh, absolutely, and and you mentioned those videos. I I've watched those videos that usually involve coyotes. Do you do you course coyotes at all? Um, so I don't. My dogs are bred specifically for hair coursing. Uh, a hair coursing yeah. dog is a lot lighter and more agile and a lot faster. Coyote dogs are very large and powerful, and so I don't chase coyotes. Got nothing against it. A lot of my good friends are complete coyote addicts. It's just I like a good race. And a coyote doesn't run anything like a jackrabbit. They run great. Don't get me wrong. A coyote can definitely run good. But a jackrabbit is just like a whole nother level. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you guys are more than welcome. I got two seats available. You, you guys can come ride anytime with us. Anytime. You guys will love it. That would be fun. Oh, that would be awesome. Way back in the ozone, I, I wrote a story, uh, and I tried to paint the picture of a night hunt situation with hounds and going out to the woods and all of that. And I had visions of John Steinbeck in my, uh, in floating around in my mind. I was going to paint this, uh, this scene. And, uh, as the trucks turned off the highway and the dust was boiling under the tires and this rabbit jumped out and ran down the, the two track in front of the truck. And I, the only thing I could think of is that he ran Tony Dorsett style, which <laughs> is what you're <laughs> reminding me of. If you remember who Tony Dorsett was, uh, mm -hmm. he, he uh, was a running back for the Dallas Cowboys. But at any rate, that was probably a pretty weak uh, attempt at descriptive writing. But I, you know, seeing all those twists and turns, I spent a year in Texas. Uh, you know, in San Angelo, which is out 
kind of semi-desert country and lots of jackrabbits out there. So I've seen them. You know, we used to have a big jackrabbit uh, roundup on the flight line because those things uh, were foreign object debris, you know, for the airplane. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and they'd pile them up, you know, there'd be 100, 200 jackrabbits that they'd kill off the, you know, they'd let the GIs go out there and it was just kind of a drive for them, you know, and shoot them as they mm-hmm. came up with shotguns. But uh, really interesting interview today. I, I've enjoyed this. I've learned a lot. And uh, uh, I would love, absolutely love to get out there and see those dogs run. Yeah, you guys are welcome anytime. Go ahead, Seth. Go ahead. Oh, I was just say you guys are welcome anytime. Uh, your jaws will be on the floor. It's it's very exciting. Yeah. Seth, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast today, uh, sharing your story. We definitely – I'm i intrigued. I mean, I'm more than intrigued probably. I, it's probably going to be something I'm going to have to get out there and see for myself. That just uh, – and I, I want to hunt with somebody like you that's put a lot of uh, research into it. So I really appreciate you agreeing to come on the podcast today and, and share your, your history and your story and, and your background and, and your love and enthusiasm for the coursing dog. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this talk and, and maybe open up our eyes to a, a whole uh, other part of, of our heritage that, like you said, it's a small community and probably gets overlooked. So you got any final thoughts? Well, for, was- you got any final thoughts for our audience Things that you would want to say to uh, uh, 70,000 70, people out there. We've had 70,000 downloads, so. Keep hunting, boys. Keep hunting. <laughs> That's what I would say. There you go. <laughs> There's a lot of information to cover. We can we could do it again sometime, guys. And uh, it was an honor. Thank you so much for reaching out. And uh, to all the hound hunters across America and the world, guys, keep hunting. Great. So. Steve, I'm going to hand it off to you to wrap it up. All right, well, it's been a great time and a great visit with you, Seth, and I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, our our closing uh, line has, uh, has has served us really well, but in your case, uh, Seth, uh, the act of following your hound is rather short, but it's no less exciting and fun, just as much as what we do, but... Uh, to all of you out there, uh, get those dogs out in the woods as Seth says, go hunting. And you follow your hounds, and I'll follow mine. As houndsmen, we share very unique needs when we make a decision to relocate, especially when it comes to finding a hound-friendly environment in which to live. REMAX Hall of Fame realtor Evan Harrell is a houndsman himself and he and his team understand your relocation needs as no one else can. With so many things to consider before you move, Evan can help you find just the right location anywhere in the country whenever you decide to go and will even help with the process of selling your present home. And Steve, Remax Elite Realty is based in Franklin, North Carolina. Evan Harrell specializes in residential sales and especially in helping people like us to relocate to the locations we choose anywhere in the United States. Remax has been the leader in residential transactions since 1999 and rated the number one brand in real estate. Evan has been named top producer four years in a row and Chairman's Club recipient in 2018 
Contact Evan online at evanherrell.com or give him a call at 828-371-5103. You and your hounds will be glad you did. <laughs>